Mind Body Connection podcast. The Body and Mind. With your host, Dr. Phil Parker. Hi, and a very warm welcome from me, your host, Dr. Phil Parker, to this episode of the Mind Body Connection podcast. Today I've got the pleasure of interviewing Professor Luana Koloka, who has been around pain and placebos for a long time. She worked with uh, some of the people who uh, are luminaries in the field in her early studies and now is considered to be a world expert herself. Uh, she also was awarded the Patrick Wall Prize. Uh, for those of you who know about pain, the Melzack and Wall uh, Gate Theory Pain, that's who Patrick Wall was, and she got a prize uh, awarded for her extraordinary work. Uh, she's worked in so many different areas around pain, nocebos, placebos, different conditions, including similar work on Parkinson's. Uh, so, so much to talk about. Uh, she's a doctor, she's uh, got a PhD, and uh, let's have a chat to Luana. <laughs> so welcome, Luana. It's so great to have you here. As, uh, as people have just heard from my introduction, um, you are you know, considered to be uh, one of the leaders in uh, placebo pain studies. Um, so it's, re- it's great to have you here. And I'm going to start, as I always do, uh, with a simple question, which may get quite complicated quite quickly, which is... Um, this podcast is all about the mind-body connection. That's we talked just before the uh, the recording began. You're not super happy with that that uh, terminology, so we can explain that in a minute. But for you, um, explain how you feel about the mind-body connection or the title you'd like to use first of all, and why you prefer one title or, or rather than the other. Do you want to start yes. there? Sure. First, uh, I would like to thank you, Dr. Parker, for this opportunity. It is very important to educate people about brain or mind-body connections. So as I mentioned to you, I prefer to talk about brain-body connection instead of mind-body connection. And I will explain why. First, I feel more comfortable as a neuroscientist to talk in terms of biological connections. But also because when we talk about mind, we include the more philosophical and uh, anthropological aspects that uh, to me are very much connected to the brain. So a biological event is so important to trigger a mind change or a thought or something that we perceive as awareness. And there are situations where our brain is so powerful and we don't even realize that. So that uh, I truly believe, and we will do some example later on, that talking about brain-body connection serves us much better because we can explain placebo effects and other outcome changes that sometimes seems to occur out of the blue without an explanation because we don't have a perception, a feeling of this change, but in reality there is a brain change. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I for a long time, started to use the phrase brain-body connection. And then people would often say to me, well, what do you mean? Everyone knows that the brain is connected. There's nothing <laughs> magical about that. And they, because they can see the anatomical interconnections between those things. Uh, and so I've started more recently going back to using the mind-body connection to bring in the idea of the the thought processes, which which of course run you know on the electricity and the hormones of the brain, but to bring in the idea that 
there there is a, an impact with how we think and perceive of things and how that affects our physiology but uh, we'll we'll move between these two mind brain mind body brain body in the conversation and so when uh, when people say to you well what do you mean what what is the mind body connection how do you explain it simply to people sure yesterday i was talking to some colleague of mine they do patient oriented research and I went without any PowerPoint because I thought that uh, explaining uh, the brain changes occurring when we perceive a reduction of a symptom can be too complex. But we all uh, somehow in our life make experience of um, expectations and placebo effects. Anytime we do, you know, something that is clinical oriented or even life oriented, we have an expectation, an anticipation of something, an anticipation of a benefit, an anticipation of, um, for example, pain relief. So this sort of um, anticipation of an outcome that in our more neurobiological terms, we will say, you know, predictions of outcomes produce, um, you know, a behavioral change. This behavioral change in very simple words can be a reduction of the pain, a reduction of the complexity of the experience of the pain, but also can be a feeling of happiness if we have uh, you know, an interaction that somehow is positive with a colleague, with a relative. So we experience this kind of back and forth between what our brain would like to get back from you know an interaction a treatment or an intervention and we do know that the novelty here is that we can study the mechanisms so why does a body and a brain talk together to make us feel a symptom as higher or as lower depending on our expectations because unfortunately we have also negative expectations not only positive expectations so i would say in one sentence that uh, brain body connection are linked to mechanism that can explain behavioral and clinical changes that otherwise we may not able to fully understand one of the uh, questions I also ask around this is whether the word connection is right, because as soon as we use the word connection, we're suggesting that we are talking about two separate entities. And, and many people would argue that this artificial separation between the brain and the body is where we often, where Western thought took a, a wrong turning and started to distinguish these two aspects. What's your thought on that? Do you, do you see it as a connection or do you see it as a, a complete system? I prefer to think as a complete system and impairment of this system from psychosis or um, neurological disorder or, you know, the extreme a coma status interfere with um, this sort of continued communication occurring between the brain and the body. So definitely it is uh, one system. For simplicity, we like to talk about brain-mind-body connections to explain, you know, changes occurring in our body. But of course, our body and our brain are one part. So for you, it's, it is a crazy world to be in, isn't it? The mind-body connection, it's not, it's not what most people uh, move to. So how did you get into it? How did you start studying in this field? 
actually this is a fun story because I was very skeptical about mind-body connections. So I finished my MD and I was working with um, intraoperative settings, Parkinson patient, deep brain stimulation for patients who were not responsive to pharmacological treatment anymore. And I decided that uh, I wanted to learn more about the brain and its functions. So I start uh, after completing my MD, a PhD in uh, neuroscience. And uh, after the interview, uh, after the selection process, I realized that everyone was studying mice or rats model or even molecular models. And I wanted to use my background in medicine. So I spoke to the committee and I say, I would like to continue human research. And I said, well, we have only one professor here, that is Professor Fabrizio Benedetti. He studies the placebo phenomenon. And I went to talk to him and we had um, a long conversation in a rainy, dark afternoon in Turin. And uh, he suggested that um, he would love to have an MD in his team and uh, eventually mentioned all the projects that were available at that time. And I say, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not interested in mind-body connections. I would like to do something that may change lives of people and is embedded in the mission of medicine. So he was smart and he said, you know, Luana, I have a project that um, is with Parkinson patients, will be a fantastic continuation of your interest. And I started to work in this setting where we were conditioning the patient with apomorphin, that is um, a dopamine agonist, and patients were receiving surgical interventions for deep brain stimulation implantation. And for those who are not familiar, you know, patients receive two big holes in the brain. There is a microelectrode that penetrates deep in the brain where we have the center for controlling motor movement and other, you know, mood changes. And in this setting, we were studying placebo effects. So patients were preconditioned pharmacologically with apomorphin, and then the day of the surgery, we replaced apomorphin with a placebo that was given subcutaneously in the arm. And we were interested to see if they somehow felt better. And also for us, and for me, the most exciting part was to try to understand if there was any change in the brain. So we were recording single neuronal activities directly in the brain while, you know, we were somehow having a break from the surgical procedure. So um, patients who were responsive to this saline solution that was injected subcutaneously with uh, the verbal suggestion that they were receiving the same treatment as the day before the surgical procedure, were not just to say, well, I feel better, I feel after as if I receive apomorphin, but also we were observing a change in the spike of the neurons, a change in the characteristics of the neurons, the bursting activity. So for me, this was a sort of epiphany because finally, you know, the psychology that I tried to stay away all the time was coming into fruition and making a change at the level of the neuronal discharge. Literally, you can see this spark and uh, the spike and the burst activity changing in front of me. So I, 
I was so impressed that I decided that I wanted to learn more about this phenomenon. And I think it's a perfect example for you. <laughs> just for people who aren't deeply familiar with some of those terms, just to clarify. So what happened was the people were getting... So if you have Parkinson's, you have a, a lack of dopamine. And dopamine is important for moderating movement to make movement more um, comfortable and relaxed and steady but it's very difficult to trigger dopamine production one way you can do it is by using apomorphine and what you did was you gave them apomorphine was it three days in a row is that what it was and on the final day so that i think it was injected wasn't it so the third the final day they injected nothing but a saline you know, so placebo but they told them they, they lied as often happens in the early placebo studies uh, they injected them with this thing the patient thought it was the same drug and they felt better but even more in, in, importantly for you from your kind of research uh, physiology background was you saw the, the neurons responded as if they had been given the drug so we got a change in neurons so so that suggests that somehow the body has been tripped tricked into producing extra dopamine which is incredible, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, I know that study quite well. It's a really kind of pivotal uh, example of the reality of not just people feeling a bit better or reporting that they're improved, but actually seeing changes on a, on a molecular and cellular level as a result of nothing but an expectation of receiving the drug. So yeah, it must have been quite a moment for you. And what, what happened as a result of that for you then? Yes, definitely. And I feel um, this example uh, explains very well the power of the brain-body connection or brain-mind-body connections. Because um, somehow we can train our body, our brain, to create uh, apomorphin-like response. So this patient perceives a reduction of their tremor, the bradykinesia on the breast was reduced, and they had this feeling of well-being because we expect that there was, as you mentioned, a release of dopamine in the brain, what we call endogenous natural dopamine. And the extraordinary thing about it is the problem with Parkinson's is they can't produce endogenous dopamine. So they're doing the very thing that is causing the symptomatology as a result of the illness, and somehow that's being switched back on. And that's kind of a lot of my work is about how do we harness those extraordinary internal mechanisms that we're only just beginning to understand because they do raise some really interesting possibilities you know to to and that study is a really kind of seminal study in in yes there really is something going on here there is a change in physiology and somehow we can talk about a sort of internal pharmacy because um, this is true not only for endogenous dopamine, but we can release endogenous opioids, we can release endogenous cannabinoids, and probably many, many other neuropeptides that still we miss to add to this puzzle of the internal pharmacy. That is the beauty of uh, placebo research. We use placebo as a tool to understand our brain body connections can help us to activate the sort of internal mechanisms that make us feel less severity of symptoms, well begin and eventually reconnected to this brain body that although we are one system, somehow may not function so well. Uh, we're so lucky to have people like you and some of my other interview guests who, who are really at the cutting edge of this because 
you know, even now people will talk about the placebo as being either um, a regression to the mean, which means that people just get better normally and it's, it's nothing to do with what you give them, or it's, it's all in their mind, they're just pretending that they're well, or from a research perspective that placebos are a bit of a nuisance because you know they, they have to factor how they work into trials to create trials that, that get rid of them rather than what you guys are doing which is going no there's something much more interesting here which is there are physiological changes going on and we need to if we can understand these then we have a chance of switching them on so for you um you've mentioned one piece of research that was really pivotal in your life but do you have any other favorite pieces of research you think that's a really you know it's a really thought-provoking interesting you know mark in the sand trial and i have several pieces but uh, i like to continue on this concept of uh, internal pharmacy a couple of years ago we started to study another uh, substances that we call vasopressin and it's another substances that we produce naturally in the brain for example when uh, women uh, uh, have you know birth and deliver you know their babies but also when we are in a pleasant relationship or when we are in love so we call uh, vasopressin um, as a sort of uh, very powerful uh, endogenous substance that we release in our life several times. And um, we decided to use a sort of boosting mechanism instead of using antagonists, for example, naloxone to study endogenous opioids, and we can talk about that. As the example of, uh, you know, apomorphine, uh, dopamine agonist, we decided to use another agonist, vasopressin, to increase placebo effects. So the idea was to inject this substance intranasally so that we can reach the brain. And there are many studies demonstrating that through the nose, we can, uh, you know, have a distribution of the drug in the brain. And the goal was to try to understand if intranasal administration of vasopressin can boost placebo effects. Because if placebo effects are so you know, important for a patient, why don't we try to optimize when they, they're used in clinical practice or maybe even to improve you know, pain management with other substances that we didn't explore yet. So we started this um, trial. I was at um, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and uh, we had several controls because, of course, we had to minimize the possibility that changes occur naturally or because of regression to the mean. So health participants, both men and women, came to the lab. We were using a, a paradigm that um, we call verbal suggestion. We were just telling them this treatment will make you feel better. And we used the same information under different drugs. And the idea was somehow to manipulate pharmacologically their expectations. So we use a selling solution as control. We use intranasal vasopressin uh, for the international unit. We use a positive control, oxytocin, 24 international units, and no treatment because, as um, we mentioned, we want to exclude that that is a natural fluctuation of uh, pain reduction. So 
we observe that women who receive vasopressin had larger placebo effects as compared to all the other conditions, no treatment, saline solution, and oxytocin. We didn't observe these effects in men, and that wasn't surprising because uh, somehow, from uh, a social neuroscience point of view, oxytocin and vasopressin seems to play different roles in men and women. So at least in women, we discovered that vasopressin can boost placebo analgesic effects. We are continuing this line of research currently in my lab with some of my postdocs, and um, we are interested to learn more about uh, the receptors that bind this kind of uh, agonist in the brain and see which kind of vasopressin AB receptors are more important and relevant to achieve this. And that definitely was um, something new because we had uh, a new, let's say, part of the puzzle, a new piece, an, an agonist like vasopressin that eventually can be, uh, you know, used to increase placebo effects. Of course, it's important to wait until other labs can uh, somehow reproduce this data. Fortunately, we demonstrate that oxytocin, at least uh, at our dosage, didn't induce an increase of placebo effects. And this is something that now has been replicated in several countries that, I mean, many groups have been shown that oxytocin doesn't increase placebo effects. So this is something that uh, I see as uh, an opportunity for uh, new avenues of research from development of a new target to maybe found strategies pharmacologically to induce placebo effects. Because as you know, psychology can be helpful, but sometimes having also a drug why not to combine with our, you know, sort of reframing of expectations may help. Yeah, so what we're looking at here is a, is a, a chemical which when administered is it in, increases people's susceptibility, as it were, to the positive effects of an expectation. So that's, that's very interesting. And it kind of reminds me of some of the earlier studies they did where people were saying, uh, when they did... Um, uh, pain reducing studies uh, using expectations and they found that when they gave uh, uh, um, what is it naloxone, naloxone isn't it um, when they gave naloxone that would block the placebo effect showing that uh, there must have been some triggering of, of the internal opiate the endogenous opiate systems so it's really interesting how strong the link is between people's expectations or suggestions given to them and the physiological changes not just people are feeling a bit better their physiology is working differently which is just so interesting it is important uh, that you mentioned the opioid system because definitely in the area of placebo research the opioid system is one of the most relevant mechanisms Probably not only for pain, but in general, uh, you know, we discover a lot about placebo by using the naloxone. And again, if we go back to this concept of internal pharmacy, having uh, this evidence that pre-injecting naloxone can block partially or completely, depending if we use verbal suggestion or conditioning, placebo analgesia, this is extremely relevant, but also 
we have been linked to this mechanism to the most elegant studies in the area, studies that involve pharmacological and brain imaging at the same time, but also elegant evidence that the endogenous opioid system is involved when we observe pain reduction because we expect or we have been conditioned to feel less pain. Yeah, one of my kind of real interesting areas that I'm particularly intrigued by, I spend a lot of time training doctors and and, uh, clinicians on is language how language specifically can without meaning to cause great response or sometimes negative response just by throwing away a comment and not realizing how that affects a patient so i thought we'd talk a little bit about nocebos because if you if you're interested in pain and placebos then you've got to be interested in nocebos as well so what what's your experience of uh, nocebos well, uh, nocebo probably is one of the most um, translatable subjects in our research because, as you mentioned, it's so connected to verbal suggestion, to communication, and to doctor-patient relationships. So, um, nocebo, well, let's define what we are talking about. Nocebo somehow has been defined as the negative twin of placebo effects. So, when we talk about placebo effects, we are talking about, you know, reduction of anxiety, reduction of nausea, fatigue, pain, and improvement of symptoms. When we talk about nocebo effects, we are talking about worsening of symptoms. And somehow, uh, we show in uh, my lab that uh, you know, nocebo effects are stronger than placebo effects. Just recently, we published our violation of expectation, both the positive and negative, can interfere with placebo and nocebo. So let me explain briefly. So the same participant was receiving increase and decrease of painful stimulation, and they were able to anticipate that with two different cues. Every time a red light was displayed, there was a painful stimulation along with a fearful distress phase. Every time we deliver a low painful stimulation, there was a green light and a happy and peaceful face. So we invite participants to learn these combinations. So there is many, many associations. And then the next day with some level of deception, we say that we would have done the same thing in the brain imaging setting. In reality, we mismatch 50% of the combination. So sometimes, for example, the green light was occurring with the unhappy, fearful face. So when we look at placebo and nocebo effects in this context of conditioning with positive and negative cues, we observe that nocebo effects continue to be there. The violation of a positive expectation block placebo effects that become minimal and disappear, completely extinguished, but nocebo effects were not eradicated by the procedure, suggesting that once we learn a negative outcome, or once we have a negative experience, or a negative word that a physician, a clinician tell us, stay in our brain much longer. So that is so important. How many times, especially at the bedside, clinicians, physicians, somehow feel the duty to say, now you're going to experience big pain. 
and we create this huge anticipation. And then, uh, you know, they have this experience of higher pain. So we favor an amplification of the pain. So somehow we believe that we are protecting some of our, although protecting can be a controversial word in medicine, let's say, empower our patients to anticipate higher pain. But in reality, what we do, we prone them to feel more pain. So, and we demonstrate that not merely behaviorally, but with brain imaging, we show that there are specific areas in the brain that uh, the temporoparietal gyros and some other part of the brain are active, managing this discrepancy between what we expect and what we get. And somehow this negative memory stay there, stays there much longer. We were not able to you know, abolish the nocebo responses. And this goes back to the communication and language. I mean, we wrote um, a couple of years ago a piece for JAMA where we stressed that uh, patient-clinician communication and nocebo effects and clinical outcome are so interconnected. And we truly need more research in this area where we not merely explore the mechanism of the nocebo effects, but the translational component, because it's something that, of course, requires some shift in the way we educate our future clinicians, psychotherapists, and, um, you know, clinicians in general, but definitely words that we choose impact perception of symptoms for a long time, and that is bad. <laughs> I, I think the other thing that's really interesting from my perspective is when people get those kind of uh, uh, bits of information, we know that there's some kind of negative response. But I think there's another conversation, which is when they go away from the doctor, how many times they tell themselves that. And that's where the mind-body connection comes in. It's like, what is the internal stimulus of those internal conversations that they run with? And what could then be the effect of in terms of longevity and neuroplastic changes as a result of carrying Absolutely, that away. Absolutely, because by rethinking, we have this reinforcement of expectation and consolidation of the memories, definitely. And if I may, you know, you mentioned something about, um, uh, you know, our patients then can become somehow more prone to show negative phenomena. But also there is another component. When this patient eventually they go home, they talk to another patient or they Google. And that is what uh, is becoming one of the main areas in my lab currently because we are interested to understand how social and observational learning can impact clinical outcomes. We were the first 10 years ago to introduce the concept that modeling and to show, to provide evidence that merely observing another person can produce placebo responses. So we call this uh, socially induced placebo effects or observationally induced placebo effects. So the concept is that when we observe another person in pain or receiving a benefit, somehow we create again this reinforcement of expectation and social learning is as strong as if we experience first-hand outcomes. So Googling, talking to peers can be extremely you know, important, again, to create placebo and nocebo effects. I was going to ask you about that. It's one of the, my notes to talk about because <laughs> uh, I think that's very interesting on two levels. First of all, 
um, a lot of the conditions I work with um, are quite difficult to, to treat conditions. And so people often seek out people with the same conditions and go to support groups, both online and in person. And I think there are some interesting questions as to whether sitting in a room, whether it's online or in, with real people and just endlessly talking about how awful life is, which you can understand why people would do, but whether there is a negative consequence uh, from exactly the, the, the procedures that you talk about. I don't know if it's if it's common in the UK, but also there are situations in many countries where patients share their rooms. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how many times, for example, they get a lumbar puncture and they start to all to have nausea and vomiting, you know, because <laughs> it's a of social, you know, learning or social contagious mechanisms driving nocebo effects. And I think the other side of that, the positive side of that, is is we can anticipate there there will be a positive effect of hanging around people who are getting positive change. So a lot of the work I do is in groups, tr treating and sure. training groups. And I'm sure there's a group effect if you can start to get people making change who have similar or can recognize the similarity in that person. It, it encourages that expectance, expectancy that, well, if they could do it, I wonder if I could. And that, I think, uh, helps to move away from the, the Google and uh, support forums that tell exactly the opposite story. Definitely, group therapy can be a wonderful uh, way to somehow harness social learning and placebo effects in a positive way. As, as long as it's managed in the right way, because it does also produce the opportunity opportunity to produce a herd infection by one person talking about how awful things are and everybody else going oh yeah i know how that feels and then suddenly they're all their neurology is firing at the same time and i've sure. seen that as well where it's not well managed and and you just see problems being developed in that in that moment i'm not surprised yeah. and definitely it is more difficult to, you know to lead a, a group therapy that a one-by-one -one therapy yes so for you, um, do you have much experience of people saying, it's all nonsense, there, there's nothing to this, like I was saying before we started our conversation. Um, is that something you come across much? And if so, what is the what do you say to them? Where, where do you point them to, to help them to realise that uh, there is lots of information and evidence for this? Well, uh, uh, the fact that I start with a very sceptical perspective helped me to connect and, uh, you know, understand the people who are skeptical or somehow, um, you know, or, well, may not believe on with this kind of research. But um, I think uh, the rigor and the elegance of uh, our design make a shift. So we spoke um, today about different mechanisms from molecular to brain imaging that have helped to give um, a sort of um, rigor in the area of research. And that is why now placebo is becoming a tool to learn more about brain, but also a challenge to understand that eventually we can uh, exploit this mechanism to inform clinical practice. And that is fabulous when you truly see the translation occurring without waiting for many, many years. And we mentioned the example of framing effects and nocebo responses. I mean, uh, 
Uh, of course, we have somehow to re-educate our future clinicians to change the way we communicate with patients. But I remember when I hear that during my MD, was a sort of class of empathy and ethics. Now we are talking about neurobiology of, you know, clinician-patient communication. And I feel like when we have this shift from neurobiology of communication to, you know, more the ethics of communication, we reach out to people who have a different background. I mean, I can talk to a person with a background in chemistry, for example, and it will be not so surprising to explain that eventually we have an engagement of receptors and not the same receptors that we activate with exogenous opioids. Rather, we talk about different, you know, receptors or uh, food and isomers of receptors when we talk about endogenous internal mechanisms. I think that is one uh, example to show that uh, we are talking about a topic that is very interconnected with uh, anthropology, psychosocial component, psychotherapy, psychology, and uh, why not neurobiology, chemistry, neuroanatomy. And this is one of the main reasons why I feel um, like um, it is fun and at the same time relevant to be in this area of research because um, I, I use uh, all my background from medicine to neuroscience to bioethics to address different topics. So one of my um, interests, uh, many of them, but one of my interests, so it was central to my PhD, was looking at addictions. Uh, and substance use and I know that that's something of interest to you the whole other end of the opioid uh, conversation which is the current opioid crisis particularly in the states and it's coming to Europe as well do you want to just briefly give us some of the most (laughs) distressing um, figures and stats about what's going on with uh, opioid use or misuse in the states at the moment yes the states are facing uh now since years, the epidemic of opioids. So uh, millions of Americans die daily because of, uh, you know, overuse of opioids. And many of these patients receive opioids to treat uh, a pain condition or they receive a prescription of opioids even for non-pain-related conditions that is very sad from, you know, young people that receive prescription of opioids during the removal of, uh, you know, wisdom teeth. And from this first exposure to opioids, they become opioids misusers and eventually they die from that. And there are also many other people who arrive to the ER with, uh, you know, non-prior exposure to opioids. They receive uh, first dose. And from the first dose of opioids, there is an, um, often, you know, a need of increasing use of opioids or becoming dependent on opioids. So, and along with this kind of, uh, you know, patients that are exposed for the first time, there are many other patients that are being treated from low back pain, fibromyalgia, and any other kind of pain disorders we can think about with uh, opioids. Unfortunately, you know, we have element and evidence to say that opioids should not be the first 
line treatment for pain disorders. It is very rare that we need opioids for chronic pain disorders. It's different with, you know, acute pain. Let's assume we receive a, a surgical procedure. Probably there is indication for using opioids in this, you know, small window from three to five, maximum seven days related to the surgical procedure. Although I'm quite uh, convinced that many patients may not need opioids even during this, uh, you know, window of surgical intervention. So the fact that so many people have been misleadingly prescribed opioids as the panacea to reduce their chronic pain has led to this terrible epidemic of opioids. Uh, you know, unfortunately driving uh, uh, one of the major cause of death in this country. So fortunately there is now awareness of misuse, misprescriptions, and also somehow uh, pain management that needed to be reconsidered based on the evidence. Evidence that sometimes was not completely clean from interest from drug companies. I mean, I don't want to preach now, but we are aware that many cases of, uh, you know, guidelines for pain treatment were somehow not based on clinical evidence. So the bottom line is that opioids should not be the first line treatment for chronic pain disorders. So Considering that the opioid system is so important also for placebo and somehow we release endogenous opioids naturally, we are trying to understand if we can find a room or at least using placebo mechanism as a sort of adjuvant procedure to help those people who rely on half dose of opioids. Can we somehow exploit our inner pharmacy, the ability to release endogenous opioids to mitigate the needs for exogenous opioids. We are working in this direction and uh, we explore, you know, the ability to really harness endogenous system for opioids to help people to cope and to taper opioids. And the, the other important aspect is to try to prevent so this first exposure to opioids in people who have acute pain and especially young people that eventually can use some other, you know, pain therapies to avoid, again, misuse of opioids. This is one of the challenge, but also one of the most, uh, you know, tangible uh, opportunities here to show again that we are talking uh, about some, you know, eventually helpful uh, brain-body mechanism that can help improve pain management. So the, the idea of the whole uh, dose extending where you uh, start to supplement the genuine pharmaceutical with a placebo and, and get very good responses. There's a number of different studies that have looked at that with different drugs, uh, which, which raises some really interesting ideas, both around uh, reducing cost of use of drug, but also the possibility of becoming addicted to it. So really quite a left field approach of using placebos in a, in a useful way. Um, and, and so this leads us on to the final kind of questions, which are, what do you see as the future of healthcare or what do you, and what do you, you know, where should research be pointing next in this field? So how will healthcare change and what's the next important bit of research to do? I think we truly need to work all together to translate this mechanism in new 
curricula for educating future people, future psychotherapists, clinicians, uh, uh, nurse, physicians, to learn more about this mechanism. I feel like when we can uh, somehow talk about the neurobiology of uh, patient-doctor communication, when we can start to introduce a placebo as a dose extending, because we know that our body connected to this powerful mechanism can mimic the same action of the drug we use to condition the participant. For example, ADHD children may reduce the need of amphetamine by interplacing amphetamine with placebos, or patients with chronic low back pain may use you know, placebo and some other pain therapies. Osteoarthritis, elderly patients may again have an advantage of reducing the drug intake by interplacing placebo. And the nice thing is that we finally are realizing that we don't need to deceive. We can clearly explain patients that because of these brain-body connections, our uh, abilities to train the body to produce drug-like responses. And the placebo is merely a tool that we can pair together with the active drug to achieve a reduction of unneeded for medications. And I'm fascinated because when we talk to our patients about these mechanisms, they are enthusiastic, they love to learn about. And some of them used to tell us, I wish I would have known before about this. And uh, they found their own strategies somehow to, you know, being able to activate this mechanism. I hear patients who tell me, well, I breathe or I meditate every morning or I start to think that if I want, I can. So eventually we need this kind of self-control feeling or possession of a drug and, uh, you know, when uh, they become able to transfer this need from a prescription of opioids to something that empowers their ability to take control of their, you know, pain or their disorders. It can be, you know, a very beautiful synergical interaction with the physician to improve, you know, the management of that symptom or disorder. One of the things I've looked a lot at is the uh, efficacy of getting in touch with uh, positive, empowering, often health-giving memories and by re-immersing in them to see if you can trigger changes in state, changes in feelings and emotions. And there's some really interesting work by uh, Megan Spear who's done some work on how uh, reconnecting with positive past memories changes stuff like the cortical, cortical spike response to stress and it was starting to see some some good uh, physiological correlates of what people report like by meditating by breathing by reminiscing in a particular way being able to access uh, a changed physiology so really really interesting stuff so for you uh, with all your both clinical and research experience uh, would you have any tips if anybody's listening to this and goes right how do i switch on my uh, brain body mind body connection uh, what would uh, what would professor Luana say yes well uh, sometimes we need help so we can't do everything by ourselves so it is important um, you know somehow to find the right physician that or psychotherapist that somehow help you in this process 
we mentioned that memories are so relevant and this is a mechanism that can't be somehow like pressing a button and switch the system we need to be patient require some training and be able somehow to favor this change in a positive way with different mechanisms that eventually can be you know a sort of uh, ability to harness this feeling of self-efficacy and uh, begin willing to have some life changes and this uh, can be a process where we still may need to see some patients on their you know pharmacological treatments but also always combine with some psychotherapy or you know eventually adding some other life changes for example exercise the right diet that eventually we are treating uh, this uh, brain you know body connections in a holistic and integrative way but definitely do not rely merely on a pharmacological treatment or merely on a psychotherapy because often we need to combine the two and be willing uh, and patient to train the body towards a switch that not necessarily can occur in one hour so we need to be patient with ourselves and be prone to train the body towards them you know, this ability to empower this internal pharmacy. Mm. And if, if you were to leave our listeners with one key point you would love them to take away, what would it be? Well, uh, definitely try to follow this line of research. People like you, Phil, and many other people help you you know, to find the new solutions and to find a new way to learn about uh, our system. I feel like the same way when we go to a cardiologist and we are instructed to change our, uh, you know, lifestyles, for example, to achieve a reduction of blood pressure, we started to think about our brain as also, you know, a system that requires some life changes from, uh, you know, avoid the rumination, avoid the negative thoughts, avoid the catastrophizing thoughts, especially for patients with, uh, you know, mood and pain disorders, to add in the life, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, strategies to have a positive approach. And this positive approach is not merely, you know, a nice uh, a word, but becomes slowly a change in molecules and systems in the brain that can help feeling better fantastic well thank you very much for your time it's been really fascinating talking to you we could have talked for hours you've done so much studies on so many things we haven't talked about cardiocysticine and anxiety or or your music career uh uh, so many things we could talk about we try different strategies always to you know harness the system from music that I'm glad that you mentioned to virtual reality to placebo effects. Lovely to speak to you, Luana. Thank you very much. It has been uh, a delight. The Mind Body Connection Podcast. The Body and Mind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes, like it, review it, and share it. The more people know about this, the better. And don't forget to join our podcast mailing list by going to philparker.org forward slash yes 
and you'll get extra stuff, bonus material, and program notes. See you there.